We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over Welcome to Femidish, a podcast that seeks to explore the various intersections of food and feminism by sharing stories of women from around the world and celebrating their unique abilities to nourish themselves and one another. My name is Sandy. Very glad to be with you all tonight. And I'm here with my co-host, Hope. Hello, Hope. Hey, everyone. And we are very excited for our guest tonight, Devana Olivas. She is the daughter of Mexican immigrants from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and a fifth-year PhD candidate in American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Her dissertation is about the politics of food in New Mexico, from agricultural policies, cultural representation, and grassroots food activism. Hi, Devana. Hi. Thank you so much for being here tonight. We're really excited to learn so much about your research and how you got into all of that and what you hope to do next and um, all the things that you're doing right now. So how are you tonight? Where are you calling from? Um, tell all our listeners about how, you, how you're doing. Sounds good. Thank you. Um, hi. Thank you, Hope. And thank you, Sandy, for having me tonight. Um, so I am calling from Los Angeles. I live in a neighborhood called Mar Vista. It's close to Culver City in Venice. Um, I live here with my partner and our dog Zia. Um, and today I've had a pretty good day. I've been, um, busy with meetings and some fellowship applications. Um, and overall, yeah, I think just still riding the wave from this weekend and Saturday's news about the election, um, and just trying to kind of soak in the energy right now. Um, but overall, um, just working on my dissertation and trying to stay present amidst what feels like a lot of uh, chaos happening. <laughs> yeah, so we should say because the the joy of podcasting and recording and all of that is that we're we're recording at different times and releasing at a different time. So we are recording the what is today Wednesday after the announcement that Joe Biden was elected president. Um, so this we're not sure when this will be released yet. So um, gosh, who knows what could happen between now and then? But um, like Devana said, it was a pretty joyful weekend for a lot of folks and a lot of celebrations around the country. Was what was it like in LA? I saw some photos and um, uh, things of people really just getting out on the streets. Yeah, yeah. I kept up with it mostly on Twitter. I wasn't out there myself. Um, we stayed home. We stayed inside, um, but celebrated in our own way. We went camping um, and kind of tried to unplug for a bit and not check Twitter like first thing in the morning. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah Hope, I, I know. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, I know you've been really, uh, you were really on the election news the 24-7. Yeah, I um. I follow an, uh, a media organization called the Young Turks, and they were actually the first media outlet to uh, call it. So I feel like I was a day ahead of everyone, which um, gave me a little sense of relief early on because they were like, why isn't Fox and CNN and MSNBC calling it? Because like, do they have some some information that we don't have? Because from their perspective, they saw, it, you know, I guess like a whole 24 hours earlier. But then I was a little disappointed because I feel like I was already like coming down from like this like sense of release <laughs> while everyone else was celebrating. <laughs> Not that I would have been in the streets either. Um, our family is still quite, you know, 
self-isolating to, to, to protect everybody that we love from um, the coronavirus. But it, it was definitely a stressful week waiting for the results. And whether you want to say that you got them a little bit early, like I did from the Young Turks, or if you waited for like, you know, the uh, the traditional sources like MS, NBC and, and CNN, um, the, the Associated Press, it was a release of, of a lot of worry for a lot of people, I think, either way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was um, completely not looking at my phone or anything, and I was at my parents' house, and we heard some, like, honking outside, and my mom was like, oh, kids these days, what are they doing out there, you know? She really, she, we were like, I wonder what's going on, and then still no idea, get in my car, drive back to my apartment, I live in downtown Portland, Maine, and I started to get text messages from people, and then started, I, was, I checked the news, and oh my gosh, you know, this is official, and... I walked up to the store to go buy some champagne and some snacks. And there's this great little market that's up the road for me. And it was just like there, people were honking and playing music. People were on the street. They were, you know, Hey, how are you from across the street? Everyone's clapping at each other and pointing and waving. And um, it was this like amazing camaraderie feeling that um, was a little bit, you just totally taken aback. Like I was not expecting it, especially not having had so much contact in the public sphere, you know, going out in the world and people are like shying away from each other in public to have people openly talking to you um, was pretty jarring, but pretty special at the same time. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty great. Yeah. Living in suburbia and in, in Portland, I'm on the outskirts of, of Portland, Maine. And I have to say I was disappointed. None of my like neighbors went out in their driveways and honked their horns or anything. <laughs> I was like, come on guys, let's celebrate. Yeah. Get some pots and pans and wooden spoons. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so uh, back, back to the subject. The, we, we hope that there is a smooth transition of power. We have no idea what things will be like on the date of release of this podcast. But it was a good weekend, a weekend full of um, optimism, if nothing else. Um, right. So, Devana, tell us about, you know, you're working on some, you mentioned some fellowship applications. You're working on your dissertation um, why don't you kind of jump in and, and let us know what is your dissertation about and what kind of fellowships are you applying for? Cool. Yeah. So um, I'll get into uh, talking a little bit about my project. So I'll start first. Um, I'm, uh, I know it was in the intro, but just to repeat, so I'm a fifth year uh, student and um, I'm currently uh, in the dissertation, like writing and research phase. Um, and really my main goals right now are um, an oral history collection that I'm gathering. A uh, broad picture of my dissertation is um, really wanting to uh, dig deeper into the food history of New Mexico's 20th and 21st centuries as a way to better understand contemporary food activism in the state. So wanting to think critically about um, how like the history of multiple colonialisms, for example, in the state, um, how the history of like U.S. capitalism um, and, you know, the the resultant racial hierarchies as a result of those um, those systems, how that has impacted the way people think about food, the way um, institutions talk about food. And so, um, yeah, kind of like a historical take on food ways in New Mexico as a way to really uh, better understand the way food justice activists, for example, are critiquing the food system um, and re-articulating their relationship to food as, as different than what sort of the dominant like corporate industrialized uh, relationship most folks have to food. Um, so yeah, that's kind of broad picture what it's about. So like history, but I'm really 
um, invested in and think uh, deeply about social movements and food justice and food really as like a tool to enact um, social change as a way to better understand how power works in our society. Um, and then currently the the fellowship applications that I'm applying for are uh, just to get more funding for my sixth year. So I hopefully can just focus on my dissertation and not have to work as a teaching assistant, which is fun. And I've, I've loved to do it the past or the two years that I've had to do it so far. But it does take up time and takes time away from the research and the writing. And um, so I'm applying for... Um, uh, I actually just looked this one up, or I actually, you know, a friend sent it to me yesterday. The Center for Engaged Scholarship has dissertation fellowships. Um, and so I briefly started this uh, by saying that I was gathering oral history interviews. Um, and so part of my work um, is to, as a way to anchor my ideas about food justice movements, in the state, I'm looking at an organization called the Southwest Organizing Project, SWAP. So they were founded in 1980. Um, they're a multiracial multi-issue organization. Um, at the time and early on, they really identified themselves as really more specifically as an environmental and economic justice org um, and has been primarily Chicanet led in the state based in Albuquerque. So that's in the central part of New Mexico. And so I'm gathering oral histories of founders and longtime members of the organization. Um, and I'm really interested in, in food justice. They're engaged in a lot of other types of organizing work. Um, and so the Center for Engaged Scholarship is, you know, funding projects that are like engaged in community and thinking critically about race and power. And that's very much, you know, how I see my project or what, you know, the goals of my project are. Um, and yeah, I'll leave it at that. Um, that's really interesting about the oral histories. When I think of oral history, I'm thinking about, you know, really uh, elderly folks of a certain population sharing their own personal lives and maybe some personal stories about what their, um, what life was like for them. Um, that's just, I'm thinking of like a couple specific projects that I've been involved with and read about. When you are saying oral history and you're trying to have the, you know, those conversation interviews, um, who are you talking to and what kinds of stories are you trying to capture? Yeah, um, I appreciate the question. So um, really primarily, I'm wanting to capture uh, the stories of, of founders and longtime members of um, organizers with SWAP. Um, so a lot of a lot of those uh, do include elders in our community, um, people who were, you know, deeply involved in the Chicanx civil rights movement in Albuquerque, uh, a part of organizations such as like the Black Berets. So my questions are very much asking them about like their life story with a focus on their experiences with SWAP, but I'm really also interested in their personal background, their upbringing, their relationship to place, what they ate growing up, um, how they prepared food, um, if they grew food with their family, um, what their grandparents did. So I'm really interested in like who they, who they are as people, how they make up, how they collectively make up this movement. Um, and, um, and not necessarily about, I'm not necessarily asking or interested in like the specifics of like, was this program that SWAP did in XYZ year um, effective or not, but more like who are the people that made up SWAP? What was the idea? Um, and how are they using food as a tool to like politicize and radicalize people? Um, and for me, thinking about food as a tool to do that is really thinking about people's relationship to place and land and and the, the land that they live with. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of what I'm interested in as well. So 
definitely like their experiences with SWAP, but really their life story, like what brought them there, um, their understanding of what SWAP's mission is. So it's a very broad mission of like uh, racial justice and, um, you know, racial and economic justice. And there's so many ways to go about advancing those goals. Um, and um, SWAP uh, has been around for like 40 years. It's actually the 40th anniversary this year. And they donated some archival material. So 14 boxes, uh, a few of them of like VHS tapes, old media, um, but a lot of documents that are still unprocessed. And they're currently at the Center for Southwest Research at the University of New Mexico. Um, and so it's important to me to record these oral histories to donate them to the Center for Southwest Research. So um, an important part of, of this project is wanting to donate uh, the interviews to the archive uh, that they've already started at the at the at UNM, and they all know about this project. And so I'm I'm also like really involved with SWAP. I was a board member for two years, um, and a lot of the people I'm reaching out to and interviewing are you know like my close friends and people that I look up to and uh, mentors. And so it's really an important project to me. And um, yeah, I'm really honored to be doing it. It's kind of, it's still new. Like I just started the interviews in August, so even talking about it, it's still like. Ooh. I can't believe it's happening. Uh, so far, I've gathered um, five, and my goal is to gather like 20 um, of like maybe like the, you know, these like longer life story interviews. Although I think um, I'm hoping there will be interest from people who are also like organizing today on the ground and post my dissertation. I definitely want to keep this project of like documenting their work um, and interviewing more people. But for the purposes of the dis, um, that's kind of the number I'm looking at is about like 20 to 30. Uh, but so far as I've started, they end up being like two parts of an interview. So really like the 20 that I thought is actually going to be like 40 interviews if I end up doing two with a lot of people. And so many people have been involved. Like I interviewed uh, one person, Roberto Roybal, who's been around with SWAP since like before it was even founded. And so, you know, it required having to talk with him for more than um, the part, you know, I ended up having to do like two different parts. Um but yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at with the with the interviews. Um, still very much learning and in process and um, quick shout out. So I went to um, an oral history workshop at the Southern Foodways Alliance two summers ago. Um, and that was really helpful in thinking about the power of oral history um, and food storytelling and people telling their stories and reflecting about their life through through food. Um, and so, yeah, that's been useful. And then another another um, oral history workshop I attended that was that's been youthfulism at UT Austin. They have a Latino oral history project, um, and so really this emphasis on like um, really learning about and and in being in like reverence of. I'm not sure how I want to phrase that, but um, humbled by I guess like the the method and, and the power that oral histories can have of like recording voices that are typically not. Um, you know, in the quote unquote, like historical um, archive. Um, and so really this, this tradition of like listening to people's stories um, who are not necessarily, yeah, reflected in uh, big capital H history or whatever. Um, and so far it's been a great process. Uh, like I said, the people I'm reaching out to are, um, are friends and, and people I really respect. And so it's been great to also hear a different side of uh, their story, you know, because I know that maybe like within like the organizing space, but the way they're talking about, you know, their grandparents or like um, how they feel about um, growing food and the importance of that is is really special. Um, it, I will say and it is kind of 
tricky right now with um with just everything going on you know so that's one thing that's been uh, slightly weighing on me is just kind of feel at times like reaching reaching out and asking people to do something like you know is it appropriate but then when when we're talking to, when you know when I'm talking to people and when we're sharing a conversation and I'm hearing their story it's like dang like maybe that's what we need <laughs> actually just like do the work uh hear people's stories and um so so far yeah it's been like a pretty like humbling process and I'm still uh like I said in like the middle of it so um the 20 to 30 goal is like by the end of summer of 2021 so in the next like uh year or so um but yeah now Devana you said that um you know you have this goal of 20 interviews which may actually in reality be more like 40 interviews because most of them are um, requiring maybe two parts how long um would one part like what is a one part interview is that an hour is that two hours um what's your recording method Are are you using audio recording video recording um what's your documentation style? Um, I'm just curious more about like the specifics of your project. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the um, part one uh, so far has been two hours. So the ones that I've done too, yeah, it's been four hours total. Um, but not everybody has the extensive experience of the folks, like the founder who have been around. So um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm troubleshooting. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> but I also want to, um, want to be mindful of like my capacity and um and yeah and then so far the recording has been on zoom actually so I have like the the video and the audio uh files from there which has been interesting um you know before COVID the plan was definitely to do these in person uh over a meal like at people's homes Mm -hmm. Uh, so that was definitely like the the goal and so I've like had to pivot and yeah think of like you know, what am I going to use instead? And and so it's been Zoom. Um, and this is also, these are also the, um, so I mentioned the two workshops, which like was like some training and some, some really good like foundations and backgrounds. Uh, but this is my first time like actually recording oral history interviews. So that's been um, a work in progress. And so, yeah, for now there, the part one is two hours, but I'm figuring out for folks that don't need um, necessarily two different parts, like how to yeah, how to um, approach that. And so one of the things actually after like the second interview, I ended up developing an intake form, um, which I should have done from the get go. But, you know, whatever, it is still kind of early uh, But to get um, a sense of people's uh, to get more like preliminary, like information and background on their um, experience with the organization so I can better tailor my questions. So most of the questions about people's like upbringing and personal background and like life history and their relationship to food. Um, are pretty standard, but the questions about the organization are different depending on what they what were involved with. Um, and so the intake form has helped with that. Um, and actually have a, an interview coming up on Friday. Um, and then in terms of documenting, so taking um, notes after the interview, so like memos to myself, mm-hmm. uh, and then the Zoom, the audio transcript like provides, it provides a transcript as well. Um, so hopefully, um, I still haven't downloaded the transcripts um, from the ones I've done so far that the transcript is readable enough, but if not, you know, I'll have to transcribe my own. Now I, I have to commend you for using zoom because uh, Sandy and I have been using um, this platform, which for our listeners who don't know, we use Zencaster to create this podcast. And part of it is because there's no video involved. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm currently wearing like a paint covered roots concert t-shirt. <laughs> Um, so the fact that you're like, you know, willing to put yourself on the archives 
in video is is commendable in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not willing to do that right now. That's not where we're at at this point in quarantine. Um, but I did want to ask, like, so what are people saying about their food histories? What are they saying about their history with the organization? Is there anything that you could, I, I know you're kind of new, newly venturing into this oral history project and you might not have a great sense memory at this point. Um, but is there anything that you want to just kind of let our listeners know about what you're finding or, or, or the history that you're recording? Yeah. One of the things that's been, um, that's really interesting to me about, about WAP and that's been great to hear about from people who um, were organizing with Leon and who were involved, um, uh, you know, in Albuquerque, um, in the Chicano movement, like I mentioned locally, um, is the, the emphasis on um, like an international commitment and connection to colonize and oppress peoples yeah, around the world. So this um, this analysis that SWAP had, like from the beginning, was very much um, this like third world uh, political solidarity with um, yeah oppressed peoples, especially in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And so um, a few of the key founders of the organization were really involved with um, Cuban solidarity politics in the seventies and sixties, and they organized. Um, these brigades, so it's this Venceremos Brigade, which I think they still organize. It's an organization, um, Cuban and U.S. I don't, I don't know more specifically about the brigade itself, but I know it's part of like a larger thing that then, you know, local organizers in different parts of the country. So like people in Albuquerque that eventually went on to found SWAP would go on these brigades, and it was really just like a display of this, you know, international solidarity, worker solidarity that really carried into SWAP's work and has for the past like 40 years. So that's something that um, was an area that I was excited to ask people about and learn more about, you know, that they were seeing themselves as part of like a global movement um, was really exciting to me. And it is exciting. to That'll be really interesting to hear the final results of that, you know, or, or I guess maybe you won't be synthesizing it so, so much, but you know, at some point you'll have a really great, body of knowledge from from these people that you spent so much time with and learning about and asking a, a similar series of questions and how great that those will be archived for others to hear and listen over time. Yeah, thank you. Um, and one of the things um, I'll add to what I mentioned just now is like I'm, I think one understanding of the of the Chicanx movement, which is also true, um, but not the whole truth of it is that it's like a very local movement, like in the U.S. Southwest or maybe even people just think of like LA and Texas, um, but really this kind of uh, focus on New Mexico, Albuquerque, but also highlighting like their connections to um, international organizations is really also uplifting that part of the movement, which I think sometimes can be overlooked. Um, and it's not, and really um, acknowledging that it wasn't just this like hyper-local movement, but it always understood itself in relationship and organizers un understood themselves in relationship to um yeah, people in, in different countries and in Latin America. And um, like I said, like international worker solidarity, um, which I think is a really important narrative to keep in mind. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear from you about the food and politics. You know, we know food is political and there's so many different ways that that manifests like and for, to so many different geographies you know, across the world. 
um, but also for different demographics. So I'd love to hear some thoughts from you about in the Latinx community and where you are geographically in the Mexico, New Mexico area. Um, what what does it mean to say food is political? What are what is the sort of food and political activism that you're working on, or you want to highlight? You mentioned about you know uh, capitalism and the effects that that's had on uh, food culture. So if you want to talk for a minute about um, the food politics in your geographic area and also with the demographics that you live in and, and work with. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, so I, I think I'll, I'll start with, with talking about um, the, the history of, of multiple colonizations in, in the area, like in New Mexico, but also, you know, the Southwest. And by that, I mean, um, so the area was, you know, the Spanish came and quote unquote conquered, right? This, uh, act of colonization um in the in 1598 santa fe i think was established as a city in like 1620 um the pueblo revolt happens in 1680 drive the spanish out in new mexico um and then the spanish come back in 1692 um and so there's that colonization and then there's uh the anglo the american capital the colonization of um in 1848 with the u.s mexican war um but really like Anglos coming in uh, even decades before that from, from Texas coming to New Mexico. Um, so I'm kind of specifically talking about New Mexico because that's my project, but generally, yeah, I think in, in the geographic area, like you mentioned, um, I think talking about Buddhist political is like inherently talking about that history um, and the legacies of, of those multiple colonialisms of, of the Spanish and then the Anglo colonization, um, how both of those really like changed um, dynamics between people um, and the places that they live in, um, changed the way that like land is used um, and thought of really. Um, so from like a, an indigenous perspective and also, you know, the Spanish had this this idea of land, you know, they, they were under like a commons um, system. So it wasn't, land was not seen as like private property that was something that Anglo colonization brought. So it's also in New Mexico kind of understanding the different layers of, like I said, like these multiple colonialism. So um, what the Spanish brought, the impact on that, right? Like all the animals, they brought the cattle, um, the wheat, um, and then the policies and um, the settlers that Anglo colonization brought. So I think, yeah, talking about food politics is inherently talking about, or has to, I think, consider those histories. And I think it's, um, paramount to understanding the like, uh, you know, understanding that those colonizations, you know, these, uh, these conditions are like ongoing, and it actually like it didn't go away, it just kind of ch took a different form. Um, but, you know, especially looking in New Mexico right now, some of the most uh, impacted communities by COVID um, are Navajo communities, our Native and Indigenous communities in, in the state. Um, so it's, I think, yeah, that, that would be my, my kind of first response. Um, and I think in terms of um, Latinos and Latinx population and, and food politics, so I'm kind of in New Mexico, I'm thinking about, um, I'm writing, there's different understandings of, of Latino and I guess in different areas, and that's what's so complicated or so complex about the term. Um, but um, I'm really interested in, in the, the history of, Chicanx people, but also Mexicans, and that that is depending on who you're talking to. That's going to be different. Uh, so, for example, I grew up and was raised by Mexican immigrants who had recently migrated. So we didn't necessarily have this like New Mexican Hispano 
Chicano sort of identity. Um, so that's kind of important to keep in mind that there are just distinctions. I guess this isn't necessarily the place to get into like the super nuances of that, but um, broadly Latinx uh, food politics, I think has to attend to, um, I think one of the most important areas is um, in terms of like issues. Well, there are so many, but like labor, um, farm workers, uh, people who work in the food service industry um, are, you know, overwhelmingly of like Latinx descent, whether they're U.S. born or, or immigrants. Um, and so that's definitely something that I'm, I'm very, um, you know, that I think is important to, to read about, to teach, to learn about, uh, to talk about, um, and that I actually want to learn a lot more about in New Mexico. I have, um, you know, part of, part of the critique of Swap's critique of food systems, um, is that the food systems, you know, that it's, it's, we're inherited, we've inherited the system from these, like, legacies of, of colonialism that I'm talking about. Um, and so one of the ways we see that is how, um, you know, the labor, how that is most of the labor being done and that like really built the food system that we know today was like off of um, the backs of like black and brown people um, and indigenous people across the country and in New Mexico as well and immigrant communities. Um, and so I think that's also another really important piece of thinking about um, race and racial hierarchies and racial divisions um and how that's and um how those racist divisions uphold a certain food system capitalist like food system that we all participate in um you know the, these essential workers like i've been keeping up with um oh, i'm gonna try to find her her name on twitter so i can um shout out this account um but it's a person who's been researching COVID outbreaks in meatpacking industries. Oh, and wow. Most, yeah. Um, anyway, her, her research has been really interesting and she's been just like really devastating of like these COVID outbreaks at meatpacking industries. And we know a lot of, um, you know, labor that's done at the meatpacking industries are is from people of color, specifically um, Latinx immigrants. Um, and in, in a lot of cases too, um, Latinx immigrants, you know, that are coming from indigenous communities in, in Latino America, which is an important distinction. So they're really indigenous people um, that are kind of understood within this blanket of Latinx immigrants. And, you know, it, it's a little bit more complex than that. I've kind of said a lot. I, I know, I don't know if I've <laughs> but I know. No, it's great. I think we need to like, you know, pick it apart a little bit. Um, but there, there's so much of what you're talking about that like is bringing up different things that I've like personally learned or conversation as I've personally had lately. Um, one of which is I have a friend who is, I guess as as a broad description, she's she's Latina, and I was talking to her about culture and heritage, and she was talking about um, her indigenous heritage as an as an indigenous person and how, you know, span the Spaniards colonized her country and I feel like you know I'm I'm a white woman and I like to think that I'm you know educated on these matters and all of a sudden it like smacked me in the face <laughs> um that the Spaniards colonized first a lot of these uh, Latin Latin countries and so like, in my head I had this this image of Latin America being Spanish and I never really recognized that as a, a result of colonization um, so, you know, for me, that it was a little embarrassed that I was like, just realizing it. And I was like, oh my God, 
<laughs> Why didn't I know this before? Um, but I think it's important to realize that there's been like all these different levels and it, it, it's not just super superficial. So um, you, you can be talking about, like you were saying, different people will have different identities within the same community, the way they identify themselves. Um, and then you, you have indigenous communities and you have indigenous communities that defy borders, modern borders. Um, right. So, you know, they're in New Mexico, you know, I'm sure I, I'm not super versed on, on the different communities, but I'm, I'm sure there's communities who have been split right down the line by, um, you know, the modern U.S.-Mexico border that, that, that wasn't there you know, generations and generations ago. And that would have been the same people <clears throat> living on both sides of that now modern border. Um, so yeah. I just think it's like good that people bring that up and we talk about that and that how that just influences food and mm-hmm. families and culture. And, and um, I don't know, I just feel like it was a recent realization for me. And so I like listening to you talk about the nuances of that and that, what that brings to your research and to um, the different areas there. Um, what I was most interested in though is, you know, we were talking about um, this different activism and what role do women have in these spaces? Because I know on our our platform here, we are looking for like women's role in the food system. And I feel like a lot of times, mm-hmm. um, even when we're talking about food sovereignty or farm workers' rights or um, hospitality industry industry workers rights I feel like the male worker is still um kind of prioritized whereas a lot of times at least in my experiences when it comes to the people organizing when it comes to the people pushing the organic and the sovereignty movements all these different movements they tend to be the women so what is your experience with the women's role in the food activism sphere and sphere excuse me (laughs) Yeah. Um, let's see. So my, um, I guess I'm, I'm thinking kind of off the bat of like specific women I've met. Um, one in particular who I actually was working with earlier today, um, her name is Stephanie Olivas. Um, and she was a really important early um, teacher of mine in terms of um, learning about food justice and food justice in New Mexico. Um, she was an organizer or is an organizer with, with SWAP and at the time with Project Feed the Hood which was where I first learned about food justice. Um, but yeah, I was kind of thinking of specific women, but I think your question, um, one of the things I was also thinking about that like immediately came to mind is just, I think a lot about how this isn't directly about women in like the food, food activism space, but more about women's roles within like food labor that I kind of thought of when, when you were asking that. And, you know, people, I'll think of, I'll name two other like, uh, women food activists that have been uh, really um, important for me. Um, and that's Joanne Lowe, um, who was a co-founder and co-director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance for um, years, I think recently stepped down. Um, but um, I met her in person through my work with the Los Angeles Food Policy Council. Um, and so, you know, just, um her, her politics and, and her organizing work with the Food Chain Workers Alliance has been really important for me. Um, and then another, I guess I'll name two more, uh, Saru J- Jayaraman with the Restaurant Opportunity Center um, is another really important, um, like women in the food activism space that I, you know, uh, whose work I keep up with and who I've read and been inspired by um, and really shining the light on restaurant um, workers and restaurants really being this uh, 
important organizing space for labor and for workers and also for women workers who like are often in, in restaurants like front of the house servers experiencing not only like low wages but also sexual harassment on a daily basis or you know whenever they're working um and then another woman that I was going to mention gosh there's a lot of really badass women I worked with and like <laughs> yes <laughs> that's what we that's- like to hear keep them coming <laughs> Claire, Claire Fox who was the director of the Los Angeles Food Policy Council I worked with her when I was an intern um and just really important um yeah role model for me the way she um carried the vision of the Los Angeles Council really um helped to grow the organization from when it first started I think it was in 2010 and it grew out of initiatives from the mayor's office in LA and then turned into this you know transformed or you know grew into um its own um you know 501c3 its own space outside of city hall um and just like this really amazing organization another person i met there uh brianna morrison um also a phd student at usc in urban planning and so her and i i learned a lot uh, from brianna about um like the intersections of like food policy and and um organizing and research um and how i could carry roles as like an academic but also you know um, wanting to work in spaces outside of academia. Um, and yeah, I think I mentioned earlier, like how I, I was thinking about food labor. Um, and, you know, one of the things I'm really struck by is like um, how women just this like second shift, right. That feminists um, have talked about of a woman who comes home after working all day and then still has to have, dinner ready and you know dishes cleaned and house tidy uh for uh, her husband this is within like this like you know typical like heteronormative cis heteronormative couple um and how like I you know that's actually when I think about it I'm kind of like oh god that's like you know because it's not my reality I sometimes feel a little bit disconnected you know I'm luckily with a partner who like shares all those duties and we're really like we talk about gender roles and I like you know talk talk about how I resent sometimes like how cooking is very like naturalized as this woman's role and uh, but also at the same time it's elevated in professional spheres as like a as like men cooking right like once it's professional it's like men who are being profiled as chefs even though it, they're all they're almost always being like oh well you know I learned by watching my dad or like you know I was just watching my mom do her thing um like women just do so much um but yeah anyway in terms of like labor and food I was thinking about that uh, with like the, the whole, the reality of um, the second shift. But I mentioned how like, yeah, that's not my reality. So sometimes I feel, uh, you know, I, I forget about it, but then I'm like, I go back home and I visit my tia and like, that's very much, you know, she's, she cooks and she cleans and she also works. And she also like is on top of all of her kids, like school duties. Cause that's just like, not what my uncle does. You know, that's not what my theos do. So this like, Uh, food was one of the first um I have a kind of like like a you know politically and um intellectually I I, I study food and I think about it um and emotionally it's still I have a challenge with food um it's it's a you know it can be it was definitely one of the first spaces where I was like oh we're like women and men are treated differently like why why won't um why isn't my tia sitting down until like all of until my tio's eaten and it's because it's like she has to be up on her feet to like in case he needs another tortilla or she needs to heat him up 
uh, reheat the one he has, pass him the salt. Um, and it's just like, there's this like kind of custom of like, well, no, like, you know, I won't eat until everyone else has eaten as a woman, this like sacrificial. Anyway, so I was like young, I think, just kind of being like, wait, this is fucked up. <laughs> we should all eat at the same time and we should all be helping. And even at family parties, the dynamics of like the women preparing the food and preparing the sides and the salads. And then like the dudes outside just like drinking beers. Um, that was very much what I grew up around and seeing. And um, so, yeah, there's like a lot of resentment. And I think because, and then also I remember comments from my grandma of like, you know, um, what, like you need to learn how to cook and then you can get married. Like, but you need to learn how to cook first. And don't worry if you don't know how to cook. Um, like, I'm sure your husband will be patient as you learn when you're, when you get married, like asking me at, at this point, she doesn't really. And other Thea's don't really, because I think they're like, okay, you know, she's like 27, still in school. She <laughs> <And laughs> has like, I've never not been a student. Uh, so I think they're just like, yeah, why would I even bring it up? But I definitely remember hearing those comments when I was a teenager. So I like very much rejected that and was like, not, you know, I didn't necessarily grow up in like, oh, I like love food and I want to cook. And like, I'm helping my, uh, my grandma, by the way, whenever I would even ask to help would be like, get out of my kitchen. <laughs> like you won't know that stuff. And my mom would as well, even though, although now that I'm older, I wonder if sometimes it was like, as a, like, they're like, no, you're studying. Like you, you know, kind of, I mean, kind of fucked up, but like focus on like work. Don't necessarily like, don't, don't like, don't worry about, don't worry uh, yourself about the food. I don't know. Like maybe cause they always had to, or like my abuelita did. Um, so I also think maybe it came from that place as well. And not necessarily just that they didn't want me in the kitchen. I don't know. But then that, that, I started, that's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. many people equate like um, marriage and homekeeping as an end to women's education. And if you've always um, really pursued your education as, as a, a primary, you know, importance and a primary endeavor in your life that's a really interesting way to look at you know maybe being shooed out of the kitchen of your matriarchs right um yeah we hear so much that on our different interviews about everything you just said about starting with okay you know women are so centered when it comes to being responsible for cooking and preparing the food in the home but then once it becomes professional and glamorous that's when men get the the fame and fortune for it but then when they're asked about well how did you get into this or what what do you like about cooking they always reference you know their mothers and grandmothers and um so it's it's so centered on women but we don't ever get the love for it um and you you mention on your uh, on your website on your bio about you know, you're really interested in looking at food as a tool for both liberation and oppression. And some of the stuff we just mentioned is a little bit of the ways that food can oppress people, you know, at least one of the ways in in our modern society that women have been really relegated to that one aspect of of home life. And the second shift, like you mentioned, coming home and I worked all day, now I have to prepare the food and clean it up and make sure that my husband or my man is all said and um, it can also be like a marker of how well you're doing as a woman or as a wife or something. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so those are ways that you are oppressed. Even, um, you know, I know some of the most like um, liberated, it seems like women that, you know, they pay attention to this stuff and their husbands are equal, equal partners on so many things. And, um, you know, they just, they wholeheartedly um, uh, like push this away, like what you were saying, you know, like, you know, just not accepting those things, but they still feel bad. You know, they still have those internalized thoughts that you, you can, you can 
wholeheartedly not believe this, but society can still get to you. So th these are the ways that food can oppress people in some certain ways. Can you talk about some of the ways that food can also be liberation for people? Yeah, yeah. And um, actually within the same context of like women and the kitchen and domesticity, um, that's something that personally for me, I've been reflecting on for the past few years. And, you know, my relationship to home, my relationship to my space and cooking and my body really you know like what I feed my body how I treat my body myself um and yeah just how like that it's like a lifelong process um but one of the things that all of this to say that yeah like I think the same way that food that I learned about food as like this kind of way that women were oppressed in my family um on the flip side it's also the way women in my family uh express their creativity, their like artistry, their uh, connection to their heritage, to, um, you know, their skill, just straight up skill. Like some of the women in my family are just like some of the best cooks. Um, and so at the same time, it's like, well, yeah, we can recognize that the kitchen is this kind of like oppressive space too. Um, and you, you've been kind of like, in a way, not had a choice in that, that this was going to be your role. Um, but, and I'm thinking here mostly of like my tias, um, uh, and that's uh, aunties, by the way. Um, sorry, I didn't yes. translate that earlier. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but also then it's like, oh, yeah, this is like when my, you know, when my tia Alicia is like making her enchilada, she's like super, it's like when she's expressing herself. And it's probably like, maybe she loves that time because it's like the only time she has like me time or like free time or like, you know, a, a time to express where it's not, because uh, she makes food also for a living because she's a, a working in the cafeteria at a school. Um, but then at home, it's like, well, that then that's got to be kind of maybe a space where she's like, this feels like liberatory, right? Like that I, I have agency here. I can choose what I'm making. I know what's going to feed my family, what they love to eat. Um, I know that they only like to eat some of the, like the way that I make certain things. So like, if they're eating it, I have to be the one that's making it right. Like these, this like pride. Um, and so I think that that's one way. And that's, that's something that I've been leaning into. And I started this kind of, uh, piece off with in terms of like, thinking about my relationship to my space and like the domestic sphere and cooking and um, how, yeah, it's, it's all, it's all related. Um, another way I think, um, yeah, food is, is a form of liberation that I've been, that I've learned and that I've, and that I've seen and that I'm hearing about in people's interviews and that I hope to like continue to learn from people who um, are, you know, living, uh, through like ongoing colonial conditions as like colonized and oppressed peoples um, and who are, you know, reclaiming their food ways. And so um, one way that food is, you know, oppression and liberation uh, is by like looking, thinking about colonization. Like I've been talking about this history of colonization in, in the Southwest in New Mexico. Um, I really briefly mentioned the 1680 Pueblo revolt uh, but one of the things I like to share about that is one of the first things that Pueblo people did when they drove out the Spanish um, was they burned down the wheat fields. Uh, so they burned down the wheat crops of the Spanish and then they replanted um, corns, beans, and squash. So the three sisters crops, which grow, um, they're like mutually uh, beneficial and help each other grow. Um, and it's this... Um, anyway, so that's like really symbolic. Right? Like thinking of that, like okay, we're gonna burn the wheat crops and we're actually planting our own crops. So this 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 idea of like that resistance has also like always been present since the since 
you know, initial like colonization and the ongoing processes of it. Um, so in the context of uh, people like living on uh, the reservation, Pueblo peoples living on the reservation um, and maybe having started to receive commodity foods like in the 20th century, like flour, cheese, lard. I think that was actually earlier on, even like early, like late 19th century, I believe. But oof. anyway, um, this isn't a history. <laughs> well, it's, it's all it's all super relevant, like We've talked in other interviews about um, different ways that uh, food has been used as resistance. Some of that's in modern ways with different with technology, but that's like the that's the OG. What you just said about you know the in the 1600s, that's the original food as resistance. We're going to burn your fields down and plant our our food that you came and you're gonna you're gonna try and take our land away. And no, this is you know this is where we have been living and cultivating, and you can't force your ways on us. Ultimately, we know that's not quite the outcome that happened later down the line, but um, it really, that's, that's so amazing that they could, would make that connection and um, show that in a rebellion like that. Yeah, yeah. And the, like, um, the fact that Pueblo peoples are using seeds that have been around for like hundreds and hundreds of years, like, so this practice of seed saving, of, um, there's another quick shout out. Um, my colleague at Three Sisters Kitchen, Tiana Baca, works with Tierra Luna Seed Collective, which um, works to adapt, um, like regionally adaptive adaptive seeds to the middle Rio Grande Valley. Um, so that's, you know, projects like that. That's an example of how food um, is resistance and food is a form of liberation. Um, yeah. <laughs> I yeah I that that kind of stuff is really I feel like at the crux the crux of what we would like to talk about you know what what is um how is food just beyond what we eat you know we we also think that there's really strong connections between women and food like we just mentioned before but also it's a, it's a tool for so many things both positive and negative but it's definitely not just what we eat for nutrition or sustenance right yeah I know it's it's a lot and it's um it's been really interesting to focus on it for like in an academic sense, because food is so embodied, um, but academic writing isn't, or I guess it can be, but um, it's just kind of, uh, it's been an interesting journey for sure. Um, And I, I feel, you know, grateful that this is kind of the area that I, because there are other things that I'm interested in. It's not, it's not just food, um, but I just think it's just so powerful because it really does allow you to talk about so many different um, issues, um, power structures, but also like really like personal and intimate and like also different emotions. Like people, like not everyone has um, one thing, you know, that I see kind of that frustrates me a little bit in like a foodie, the foodie or like food movement kind of space uh, is like an overemphasis on like positive relationships to food, which I think obviously like we don't want to just be talking about people's negative relationships either. So I understand it. And it's so important to be like, wait, we can have a sacred relationship to food. Food is medicine. Like this is all, you know, it's incredible, but it's also just like, damn, but for some people food, like there's a lot of shame there or like, you know, eating disorders. Um, There is just, it's a lot, but I, yeah, I think that's something that I, that I appreciate about it's challenging, you know, and it's, it's something that, because it's something we interact with every day that allows me to, I don't know, I feel like it's helped me be, to be a better person, to be honest with you, to think, criti- to think critically about food. Because I think more critically about 
my body, how I treat it, um, but also like what I spend, what I eat, who I who I spend time with, like my politics, you know, also like, oh, I'm like, okay, this one meal like is actually connected to a lot of different people around the world and systems like that's crazy. Um, yeah, I don't know. And then it's also just like so fucking good. Food is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I can like really yeah. relate with that, that whole kind of like last train of thought you were just, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. going on about. Um, because for me, I've had so many different interests in my life. Like I, you know, thought I wanted to be a veterinarian medicine major when I was 18 and fresh into college. And then I thought I wanted to be a midwife and was like very interested and excited by, um, you know, kind of the natural birthing movement. And this was all after getting a certificate of culinary arts. And it's just like, again and again, like food was a part of all of it. Like you have mm-hmm. farm animal, ve- farm animal veterinarians. And so much I found myself, I was working as an, uh, um, an assistant to a home birth midwife in um, Manhattan and Brooklyn in New York city. And I would find that like at the end of births, you know, once there was a healthy, happy baby and um, kind of my medical duties were fulfilled I'd find myself like in the kitchen like what do you want for a snack yeah (laughs) and so I just found like again and again like no matter what I was studying no matter what I was doing like literally I just helped catch a baby but now I'm gonna go make a smoothie because you know the new mom is hungry (laughs) and I was just pulled back into the kitchen and pulled back to studying food no matter you know kind of what else I tried to do And, and food is so central to to being a person and to just being alive, whether you're a person or an animal, like, I mean, we all need food and, and humans right. have managed to elevate it to this, like, uh, just, just this singular thing that really is what our whole lives revolve around. I mean, we eat so many times a day and our whole culture is set up about like getting food and receiving food and giving food. Right. And we use it for every celebration, whether that celebration is something really positive, like a wedding or a baby or something quite sad like a death you know even after most like death services there's some kind of meal that's shared um and so food you're right it's just it is a part of almost everything every aspect of what it means to be human and that that's what keeps keeps me interested is because when I get bored with kind of one train of exploration when it comes to food I just pick a new one (laughs) and let me go there Um, changing gears just a little bit on your, um, website, I noticed that it, that you, um, talk about approaching all of your work, all of your scholarship from a Chicana feminist perspective. Um, and I just feel like when I started this project, when I started Femidish, um, I had kind of reached out to some people who I considered kind of like well-versed feminist and was like hey what's some reading material I should read about if I want to be a better feminist and they came back with me with like well what kind of feminism are you looking to learn about and I had just had no idea <laughs> I didn't know there was different kinds of feminism so I'm really interested in if if you could take a few minutes to explain what what makes someone a Chicana feminist or what is Chicana feminist theory yes awesome this is um, taking me back to my qualifying exam days. <laughs> Don't worry, we we will not grade you by the end of this. We will not take away your degrees. Write <laughs> my literature real quick. Just kidding. Um, so, um, let's see. Chicana feminist theory. I'll start with um, that. It's really um, emerges from you know. There's there's a narrative of uh, of it emerging from the. Um, the 
male-centered politics of the Chicano movement. Um, by male-centered, I mean like literally men being like the leaders and the ones who were, uh, you know, facilitating meetings and making decisions, but also male-centered in terms of thinking about like male issues, right? Like not taking into account issues like childcare, reproductive health, um, sexism, uh, gender roles. Um, so on both accounts so there's that narrative of like chicana feminism emerges from like you know people in the movement um who women you know who were rightfully saying like we also have um a voice and we're gonna share it and we should share it officially on these platforms and in these ways and we should have spaces that are specifically dedicated to thinking about the issues that like we uniquely face as chicanas where um, as men, you're not facing. So there's that narrative, but then there's also, I think like another narrative of just like, there's a name for kind of what's always been there, you know, like that name kind of emerges, but really, um, women, um, and in this, it is more complex and nuanced than this, but, um, Chicana is really, um, understanding this community as, as people who are, uh, thinking about themselves in relationship to the history of, of Spanish colonization in the Southwest. So um, this, you know, so some people will say, you know, oh, Chicanas, or, like that also means Mexican-American. So not necessarily, um, but also, but that is, that is most often the case. Um, so it's also from coming from that politics of like uh, talking about uh, their experiences as colonized women. So with Anglo colonization happening in the U.S. Southwest and, um, you know, the the racial order um, sort of shifting um, and relegating um, Chicanas to um, a subservient status to white women. Um, so there's there's that like that that history. And I think that that importance in that like critique um, um, of that that Chicanas advance as um, as part of like Chicana politics. Um, and then in terms of, um, there was a, a publication, um, in, in New Mexico, Northern New Mexico in the seventies called El Grito del Norte, where a woman, um, Enriqueta Longo Vasquez wrote a lot about, um, uh, third world women, um, and their politics and struggles within the context of, um, the Chicano movement at the time, um, but also within the context of the white feminism movement. That's the kind of the other narrative as well that like women within the movement speaking, you know, to back to the men and the male centeredness of it, but also Chicanas as um, women who were not black, right? So non black people of color, um, but also were not white, um, especially in the context of like I'm talking about, right? Anglo colonization. Um, and so uh, it's also that narrative of like women. Um, who are talking about, you know, white feminism doesn't necessarily reflect, um, you know, the things we're talking about, right? So if white feminism is advancing, like, uh, you know, just um, getting women to still participate in like a patriarchal and capitalist society, right? Like getting women into the workforce. Um, and Chicanas are saying like, the workforce is like a racial project in this country. And we're not necessarily, you know, we're talking about, our, our politics maybe are not necessarily um, aligning. So there's that narrative of like Chicana feminism. So both, uh, I kind of said a lot, but the like the historical arc of it, of like coming from like this specific place of, um, you know, speaking back to Anglo-Polynesian from this 
like you know like I said it's more nuanced and like complex than this but um this like um heritage of uh, of Latinx descent um and you know a lot of Chicanas will say too uh, there's there's a saying like the we didn't cross the border the border crossed us so acknowledging oh. like the the connection to uh, to Mexico and to Mexicanness um that you know this idea yeah of, like crossing the border and it's like no we've always been here um and this like uh you know really prideful and like strong like Mexican identity but really routed through an acknowledgement and a celebration of um, indigenous heritage and so that's also an important part of Chicana feminism is and especially uh, more recent scholarship but really from the start that it's about like um, it's also very like spiritual and deeply personal pursuit so this feminist politics um, is like also it's obviously like within a collective right like um this intersubjectivity between women between people who identify right as women um but also um deeply like personal like individual journey of like internally who am i and why and where have i learned this um how is my identity constructed within society to whose benefit is my identity constructed this way like do i also identify with how chicanas are talked about in the media as hypersexualized as you know just having a, a bunch of babies or like um another archetype of like cholas getting in trouble at school not graduating um and so i think at the time too like when really women were in the 70s articulating it's also they were speaking back to like the the stereotypes that you know we actually kind of still see today um there isn't a whole lot of like chicana latina representation in, in the media um and especially less when thinking of, um, I think it's really important to highlight here. So um, I've mentioned like indigenous heritage, but there's also, right, like African heritage and um, a lineage and, you know, Chicanas who are Afro-Chicanas, Latinas who are Afro-Latinas. So this is all part of it as well. And um, and acknowledging like the the multiplicities of, of Chicana feminists, uh, uh, the ways that Chicana feminisms might identify, uh, feminists, sorry, might identify themselves. Um, and so... Yeah, I think one thing that I, that I, um, the way I explain like Chicanismo, Chicanidad, right? Like, a like that it's like a, a politics, um, it's like a political identity and less like a cultural, well, it is also a cultural one, but for me, I'm like, it's really a political identity for me. And that's really acknowledging like, um, uh, the, the legacy, the, the, the violent like legacies really and realities of of colonialism um in the area you touched on i mean that's that's hundreds of years of colonization and the effects of that as that has brought about so many different types of identities and chicana like you said um, afro chicana and like and how many different ones that people identify with now to to that um to showcase all of their values political values cultural values personal values and how those can be expressed in all these different identities. Political identity and that um, it's important to remember that it's not a racial one. So um, like how I said, like, because there is, um, you know, within this like complex um, development of race and this idea of race, right? We know it's socially constructed. Um, and so it takes shape in different ways in different places, depending on the context and the local histories. Um, and so within like for example I am I'm white like my family 
I'm not though, right? Like I don't identify, even though when people see me on the street and like they read me as probably like, oh, if anything, like maybe ambiguous, but definitely white. So I'm treated differently than other, uh, than like uh, an Afro Latina would be. And so I think, yeah, just remembering that it's not like a racial identity. Um, although that's been a way that people, you know, in Chicana feminists talk about race critically for sure. Uh, I just kind of wanted to bring that up and, and maybe it's getting into the nuance of it. I know you just kind of asked for an overview of like um, feminisms, but um, yeah. Well, also yeah. it's probably a terrible question to say, can you um, quickly just sum up uh, all of Chicana feminism in just a, in just a couple of sentences. So um, thank you for that, giving that, that lineage of what it, of how these types of identities develop and, and how it's also compounded by, you know, like all those different identities, like you just said, but then also the the feminine part of that, you know, and and how people even view themselves as a, a, a you know, female or not, but um, how what what their values are in addition to that. So not just your political identity. Now it's also your your gender identity and um, yeah. and potentially any race too. So there's just so many different intersections there. Um, uh, and, that, and, and then now we're trying to talk about food. So think about that when it comes to colonization too. So there, um, and you've said this many times that, you know, there, there's a lot more nuance than we can really get into in just an hour podcast, but I appreciate you sharing those, uh, all those different kinds of things. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. I love what you just, what that line of the, we didn't cross the border, the border didn't cross us. That just really brought up a lot of different thoughts for me. And um, one of it is like, you know, we're talking about feminism and patriarchy, like what a what a patriarchal idea to say that this is the border now and this is yeah. where you where you live and where you don't live anymore. And to and for to someone for someone to reject that, to say, no, like I am I am attached to this land and this culture and those do not um, have strict political boundaries just because you said so, man who won the war. <laughs> yeah, conversation yeah, who won the war. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that one got her. That one got her. Um, one thing I want to add to the Chicana feminisms conversation that relates to food, real quick. Um, quickly shout out this author, uh, Meredith Amarca, who teaches at UT um, El Paso, UTEP. Um, really amazing academic, and she quotes, she talks about this idea of food consciousness. Um, so that food, you know, that this idea that food literally awakens senses and emotions inside of the body. Um, and so one thing about Chicana feminisms that's important to under, to, you know, to include in the conversation is that it's about, um, you know, I talked about it being like a personal and spiritual journey as well. And that's really thinking about an embodied politics. And so food is one way that we can think about, you know, um, embodying politics. And so that really aligns with kind of feminist um, think about politics and, and kind of feminist theory so that's another really important part of, of you know why I use this framework and why I think about it uh, because you know with the this idea of like the thinking about the body and the knowledge that our body holds is um is feminist is like feminist practice and is like political um and and one of the things that um that I thought was really interesting when I read um her book. So she has one called Voices in the Kitchen, Views of the World from Mexican and Mexican-American Working Class Women, which is an incredible book that I highly recommend. Um, and then another recent like edited volume called um, Latinos Presence in the Food Industry. 
um, changing the way we think about food or something like that. Um, but anyway, um, she quotes a 15th century nun, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, who's often talked about within like Chicana and Latina feminisms as like, you know, this like lineage of like, look, this feminist in the 15th century. So it's kind of, you know, she's a kind of like an icon, you, you could say. Um, so that she has this well-known quote on the writing of philosophy. Um, what could I tell you, my lady, of the secrets of nature, which I have discovered in cooking? And I often say, observing these truffles, if Aristotle had been a cook, he would have written much more. Um, and oh, there's an, more of a quote where it's like, if he had um, something about like frying an egg, uh, that that would have taught him more than his books. Um, but anyway, that's another kind of like lineage and feminism that's uh, you know, been written about and talked about. I'm actively looking up these books as you mentioned them and trying to save them to my to, read, to be read pile. Right. I'm actively looking up what uh, Aristotle said about fried or what, what she was talking about with the quote about Aristotle and um, with truffles. I'm trying to see if I can find that one, but now I'm just finding recipes for using eggs with truffled scrambled eggs. <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly what that 15th century nun was. And I think <laughs> have, um, do, 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 yeah, let me see if I can find it. Google can be so helpful and also so not. <laughs> <laughs> like that is not at all what I was looking for. No, you were wrong. <laughs> um, I also found that quote. If I could read it real quick. It's a little bit long. Okay. Um, what could I tell you, my lady, of the secrets of nature that I have discovered while cooking? I observed that an egg unifies and fries in butter or oil, and to the contrary, dissolves in syrup. That in order to keep sugar liquid, it suffices to throw on it a very little bit of water flavored with quince or another bitter fruit. That the yolk and white of the same egg, when separated and combined with sugar, have an opposite effect, and one different from when they are both used together. I do not mean to tire you with such foolishness, which I only recount to give you a complete picture of my nature and because I think it will amuse you. But my lady, what can women know except philosophy of the kitchen? Lupercio Leonardo has said it well. It is possible to philosophize while preparing dinner. As I often say on observing these little things, if Aristotle had cooked, he would have written much more. Yep. And that was um, from Response to Sor Filotea. I love that. Yeah. And I also have to say that's the second time that quince has been mentioned on our podcast, which is really? a fewer fruit for, you know, um, Sandy yeah. and I are both based in um, Portland, Maine, USA. And so for us, it's a very obscure fruit. And it's the second time it's been brought up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. We'll make sure to um, the, uh, add the author of that in the description of this podcast so folks can look her up and um, maybe read that again and yeah, sure. and, and digest it a little bit or they you guys can all rewind it uh, or your po our podcast and listen to it again i think that's a lovely way to round out uh the end of this episode and um have some things to think about and some positivity and our um thinking about our own role and how our relationship to food is and also the um, events that brought us here, if we think about what's happened to our land and our cultures and colonization and all those things, um, really how we got here and what is our relationship now. 
So mm -hmm. thank you so much, Devana, for all of your time tonight and so much information shared with us. And we just spanned like centuries of time. So <laughs> thank you for all of that. Um, where uh, can folks find you on online? You know, you said you have a Twitter, other things. Where can they find you? And what are some things that you're um, hoping for for the future? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a, um, a website, I guess, if, if people are interested in reaching out. Um, it's, I don't know if you can like link it in the episode, but it's divanolivas.com. And then I have a Twitter that I, um, you know, don't keep up with like that often in terms of like tweeting like original things. So you'll mostly just see retweets, <laughs> but it's my, it's Divana V. Olivas. Um, and kind of what I'm immediately looking forward to over winter break is just kind of resting and staying home and trying to stay you know um isolated and as safe as possible with covid and you know we've seen numbers rise and so i'm just trying to um kind of get mentally prepared for just continuing you know this um this reality that we're living in and so trying to be patient with myself as you know it's it's a scary time um but also holding fast to the moments where like tonight and sharing my story and talking with you all um, has been really, has been really dope. And, um, yeah, thank awesome. you. Yeah. Well, Devana, we want to thank you so much for coming on. We really enjoyed tonight's conversation and, um, I'm sure we'll follow up again in the future as you kind of progress in your oral history, um, documentation okay. project. We'd love to hear any updates that you have as that, as that moves along, um, Mexico. If you would like to reach out to Devana, she has her own website, devanaolivias.com. And if you'd like to find out more about Sandy and I, um, you can do so at www.femadish.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at Femadish. We have a Twitter, but I don't think we've ever tweeted. I don't think we tweet. Do we tweet, Sandy? We don't tweet. I, I, I haven't tweeted. I'm not a Twitterer. We don't tweet. <laughs> Devana's doing much better than we are. Um, but again, thank you so much, Devana, for joining us. And as always, thank you, Sandy, um, for co-hosting with me. And we hope that you will all, and we look forward to sharing another voice with you again next week. Thank you. Thank you. Hanging out the towels We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over